everybody. It's okay to smile this morning. Wake up. We're here. Ephesians. We are beginning today a study in the book of Ephesians that will last for a little bit. Um, so we uh, have a pattern, if you're a guest with us, uh, of taking books of the Bible and plugging through them verse by verse, allowing God's Word to dictate to us what we talk about. And so today is our intro sermon for the book of Ephesians, and we will not be looking at uh, any one specific section of Ephesians, but giving just a general trajectory of where we're headed uh, for this book. And so if you would look at Ephesians, I want to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll go at it together. Um, so Ephesians chapter 1, if you're a guest with us, uh, we use a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. There's an app for that, as there are most things, and so you can download that and follow along with us, or there should be a Bible at the end of a row near you. If you do not own a paper Bible that uh, you would like, we have some that we would love to give you in our resource area. So thankful to God for His precious Word, and we are trusting that His Holy Spirit will use it today. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it and then I'll pray. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Father, we stop and we call out to you because we are needy and you are not. And I pray that we understand how the universe works. You are the giver, we are the recipients, and the giver gets the glory. And so, Father, we want you to be famous in our lives. We want you to be treasured in our church. We want you to be loved in our city. We want the nations to bow down and worship your great name. We want you to be seen as who you are, as frail and fragile as we are, we want people to see your glory, your greatness, your majesty, your superiority, your worth, your supremacy. You are above everything. And so, Father, by your kindness, would you get bigger in our eyes today? Would our understanding of you be stretched and broadened and expanded and therefore, consequently, may our trust grow as well. You are great and greatly to be praised. And every word of yours proves true. So please, Father, work in our midst in these moments that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Imagine 1971, that was a song by John Lennon. Imagine, now I'm not commending its worldview, but the reason it was so crazy popular was because it was pointing people to imagine something that's different than what they were experiencing, right? A season of no war, a season of peace. Imagine. Well, 
Another famous artist, Amy Grant, in 1992. Some of you had a who? Yeah, she was a Christian artist, um, and I really thought this song was kind of really cheesy, but she wrote the song with the same kind of theme. Her, her song was entitled Grown Up Christmas List. Yeah, I'm, I'm speaking truth here. It says, no more lives torn apart, and wars would never start. Time would heal all hearts, everyone would have a friend, and love would never end. This is my grown-up Christmas list. It's this idea of there's this longing for something more, this longing for something different than what we are experiencing in the here and now. So it makes complete sense why in the Chronicles of Narnia series, when C.S. Lewis ends the series with the book The Last Battle, we see Aslan speaking these final words. It's only the beginning of the true story, which goes on forever and ever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Our hearts leap for something like that. We long for something that gets better and better with time, not worse and worse. We look at our world and it feels like it's breaking apart in more ways, moment by moment. And that is all that we might loosen our grip on this earth and we might long in our hearts more for a greater reality. The reality when the God of the universe makes all things new. When His Son comes again and when all by faith in Jesus are with Him face to face. In his presence. We long for that. And that is why the Apostle Paul. It says chapter 1 verse 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's why he has written this letter. Is to shape a new reality. Is to speak to the church about a new reality. That is both theirs in the here and now. And is even going to be greater in the day to come. A reality that stood in stark contrast. To the reality the Ephesian church found themselves in. A reality that might be able to be summarized with this question. What if God was your God? What if your God was God? What if the one that you worshipped and adored and went after and prioritized was the God of the universe? The God who created all things. The God who came to us as Emmanuel, God with us. The God who gave His Son, Jesus Christ. The God who satisfied His just wrath by not crushing us, but crushing His Son so that by faith in Him we might experience a peace with God. What about that God? What if God was our God? The God who unites us to Himself by His Son and fills us with His Holy Spirit as a seal for a guaranteed eternal inheritance. What if that God was our God? Paul describes in the book of Ephesians that if that God is our God, it changes everything. And he writes to the church saying, our mouths would be filled more with what God is doing than what is going wrong. Paul describes a God who is working before time began and is still working and who will always be working for our good and His glory. That God. What if that God 
was our God? What if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who split the Red Sea, the God who sent the ten plagues, who caused water to come out of a rock, who makes donkeys talk and even rocks say they will cry out for truth and for the love of God to be communicated to his people? What if that God was our God? The God who says, all of my promises are fulfilled in my son's coming. Jesus came and every word of God's has been proven true. What if God was our God? What if we believed him and took him at his word? What if? Paul lays out for the Ephesian church what is a massively positive and encouraging tone in the book of Ephesians. He's writing it from prison. And in the middle of wrong accusations, finding himself in prison, Paul writes a massively positive letter because he knows who his God is and he knows who their God is. If the God of the Bible were our God, Paul writes things that assume this about us as a people. There would be more hope than despair. We would be characterized by joy more than discouragement. Our focus would be on blessing more than trial. There will be a people from multiple ethnicities gathering together, delighting in differences rather than forcing cultural uniformity. We would have the ability to disagree and still stay unified. He paints a picture of a people who pursue God and his ways over against the pursuit of sin and the ways of the devil. A people who will be overlooking offenses rather than having a critical spirit because love rules the heart. There will be love and respect in marriages rather than a degrading, abusing, using, or neglecting marriage. There will be peace in the church and in the home and at work. There will be an awareness that spiritual oppression is a real thing and the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour faith, but we should have confidence because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. That's the picture our God is painting in the scriptures. And that's the picture Paul is painting for the Ephesian church. What if God were our God? And so, as we dive into the letter of Ephesians, I want you to understand who these people were. Understand the backdrop just a little bit. And why Paul was so urgent to push that question upon these people. If you believe that the God of the Bible is your God and His Son has come, then it changes everything. Now, in the Ephesian backdrop, it makes complete sense why in the book of Ephesians, he talks a lot about God's power over all cosmic realities. Not just things that you can touch, but over all things spiritual, over the universe itself, that God is over everything. And he does that because in the city of Ephesus, magic and the occult were extremely prominent. On top of that, 
they also had a temple. A temple to the goddess Artemis, who for the Ephesian people of that city, she was the goddess of fertility. And so, it was that temple that was said to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, found in Ephesus, which was a major port city, a bustling city for trade. And it was that city that Paul entered into as we look at Acts 19. And when you look at Acts 19 and 20, Paul comes into that city and does some pretty crazy, miraculous things. First of all, the craziest thing is he preaches Jesus. And God does amazing things with that good news. He shatters hard hearts. He causes people to submit to Jesus. And a church begins to be formed. But on top of that, he begins to heal people. It says that he was going around healing people and God was doing such a miraculous work in that city that it was said that even a handkerchief that had fallen from Paul, if it were taken to someone who needed healing, that you could take that handkerchief to them and they would be healed. Paul was also casting out demons, showing God's authority over all things in this city that needed to see the power of the gospel. Now, Paul stayed there for three years. He was in this city for three years. He came to the city on his third missionary journey. That was around 52 to 57 AD, if you're tracking on a timeline. And while he was there, spending three years, there was a great riot that happened at a theater near to the main temple, which was the temple for Artemis. And in that theater, there was a great revolt because they did not like what was happening with the Christians. And they were screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it it says they did that for two hours straight. This is how deceived and how adamant they were for this false god they were worshiping. After this riot was over, Paul felt it was best to move on. And so Paul goes around and he goes over to the areas modern day Greece. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. And he goes around to modern day Greece and to Macedonia. And it was from there that he begins to do many things in those cities. The letter of Thessalonica, you begin to see the Thessalonian churches in that region. But then he is pricked that he needs to go and get this offering that he's been gathering to the people in Jerusalem. And so he makes a beeline to Jerusalem because he wants to get there by the day of Pentecost. But on his way down, he doesn't stop in Ephesus, but he calls the elders of the Ephesian church to him in Acts chapter 20. And they all gather around in a city known as Miletus. And as they are there, he prays. He tells them that the Holy Spirit has told him that he will suffer great things where he goes and that he will not see them again. And they weep and he prays for them and he tells them to pay attention to the flock that has been put underneath their care, to love them with the word. And it's in that time that Paul goes to Jerusalem. And as he lands in Jerusalem, all of a sudden, He's wrongly accused again. This happened a lot to Paul. And he was imprisoned. 
And he was imprisoned in Rome around AD 62, and it's in AD 62 that he writes the letter to the Ephesians from prison. Now, here's an account in Acts 28, verses 17 through 19, that tells us a little bit about how Paul got arrested. It says this, After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. So with the appeal to Caesar, he's rushed to uh, Rome, and therefore he is imprisoned. And it's there where he writes the letter to the Ephesians, and he also writes the letter to the Philippians, and to the Colossians, and Philemon, all from prison. What would you be doing if you were in jail? Paul wanted the people of God to love the God that they said they loved. He wanted them to know him. What if God was their God? He was convinced that if he gave them God, that would be enough. That's the best gift he could give. And so Paul in prison, writing to a people with a massively different worldview than what Paul was advocating for, he writes this precious church and says, you need to love Christ. Now, I was reading, uh, or I was listening to a sermon by a man named Ray Ortland, and I felt like in that he described kind of these opposing worldviews. The worldview of the unbelieving Ephesian world and the worldview of the believing Christians that Paul was trying to get them to live in light of. And here's a way to describe it. This quote is from Ray Ortland. He begins by quoting a man named Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre says, here's one way to look at the world. You are your life and nothing else. What did he mean by that, Ortland goes on to say? It means you're all you have. You are all you have to fall back on. Your future is limited to your potential. You can never take a break because you have no one to lean on. There is no one to lean on. Your existence is the sum total of your choices. And when you die, it's over. That's it. This is one way to view the world. It depends on me. I am myself sovereign. I make my path. I choose my direction. It's very appealing for many because it makes you in charge. But when you're the only one in charge of your life and you're not submitting to anyone else, you begin to realize you don't want that job anymore. So, Ray Ortland says, there's another way to look at the world. It's the one where the gospel enters in. And he says this, there is more to you than you. The good news of Jesus, the gospel says you have been united with Christ. No excuses for people like us in God's moral universe. We're all sinners and we stand condemned. However, Christ has come to us. Christ has given himself to us. He has written your story into his story. Your future is now not defined by your ability to cope or your ability to cover over your failures. Your future is now defined by his cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. 
That is an amen. That is shout worthy. But thank you. That's what we need. Paul wants glory. And so there's a contrast. Sartre says this. Think about nothing else but yourself. God says this. You're in Christ. And you need to be concerned about nothing else but Him. It's a whole new way of looking at the world. Paul says... I want you as a people to be so infatuated with Jesus that it paints every corner of your universe. That it paints every corner of your mind. It affects everything that you do. There is nothing in your life that is off limits to God. Instead, he speaks into it and he defines it because your life is Christ. Paul says, everything changes This is a summary. This isn't a quote. Everything changes when everything is about Christ. And so, friends, other than your personal struggles, as I walk around, as I look on social media, as I hear people talking, there are very few things that anger and scare people like politics. It is terrifying people. It is dividing people. And guess what? I'm not going to speak about politics. Isn't that good news? (laughs) Yes. Amen. Praise Jesus. Here's what Ray Ortland said, though. He says, we as Christians, we need to stop freaking out. We need a we need steel in our spine and a sparkle in our eye and face the future unafraid. We have to be different because no governmental structure is greater than our God. None. Psalm 112 says we must not be afraid of the future because we know our God is God. And Paul pushes on the Ephesian church for them to get a bigger view of God. You want to know the purpose for this letter? The purpose for this letter is that God would be their God. Yes, it says in Ephesians that he was writing so that he could tell them how he was doing in prison. I want you to know I'm okay. But his main point was not that. His main point is that God would be their God. I just want to read some verses to you from the book of Ephesians so that you would know why Paul wrote the letter. Why don't we start here? Chapter 1, verse 3. Why did Paul write this letter? So that the people reading the letter would do this. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does he want the the readers to do? To look at God. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Let's keep reading. What is his purpose? That we may have the spirit of wisdom. And revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which He has called us, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Do you just see? He's laboring for adjectives and nouns that stretch the heart, that move the mind beyond their reality to look at a God that is greater than what their physical eyes can see. 
So much so he's saying, I pray the eyes of your heart are enlightened. That you see with spiritual eyes the God of the universe. That's why when he talks about salvation, a very famous verse. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You know this verse? This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of who? It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Why did he write this? Look at chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. You, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. Follow me. Look at what Paul is saying. I've got to pray because understanding the love of God will require supernatural strength. More strength than trying to deadlift some weight. His love is so vast, so broad, so deep, so wide. It goes further than you could ever imagine that I'm praying that you don't give up in searching it out. Because it's so glorious. He's praying that we would see the glories of God and know His love for us. Isn't that what it says? That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know what you can't know. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If God was our God, then self and career and marriage, and money, and having our own way, and our children, and our possessions, and our family, and our city, and our country would all be secondary to God Himself. Everything is more enjoyed when it's in its proper place. Paul knew it. And he was saying, if God is our God, Paul is laying out a vision for a people captivated by the glory of God above every other glorious thing. And this is how the book is shaped. It's shaped in two major sections. Chapters 1 to 3 are all about the glory of God and how He has created a people known as the church. Chapters 4 through 6 are all about if that people know the love of God, it will affect how they live. It will change how they talk. It will change how they relate to one another. It will change their marriages. It will change their work. It will change their parenting. It will change everything. Hold up God. It will change you. That's the book of Ephesians. And so, that's why we read in the second section of Ephesians, if God was our God and we knew His love for us, Here's how it would affect how we live. Chapter 4, verse 1. We would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Here's how we would walk. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we would look like if we knew the love of God for us. If we knew the love of God for us, chapter 4 goes on to say, we would put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We would hate sin and love the Savior. We would get near to the cross and see it as our only hope. And then he goes on in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and he says, we would be imitators of God as Loved children. Beloved children. So you get it? If you know you're loved, you'll imitate the one who loves you. And so he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Chapter 5 tells us that that's going to affect your marriage. Chapter 6 tells us that's going to affect your parenting and your work environment. And then he says, it's going to affect how you live your life because you'll be aware there are spiritual battles that you are fighting. Your main fight is not against one another. It's against evil. It's against the devil. And so he says this, be strong in the Lord, chapter 6, and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul Tripp, reading a book uh, by him, And it was in a devotion book. This was actually shared with me. And the quote says this. Basically is highlighting that the love of God for you changes how you live. Here's the quote. For the believer, harsh, critical, impatient, and irritated responses to others are always connected to forgetting or denying who we are and what we have been given in Jesus. He goes on to say, it's very clear that no one gives grace better than a person who is deeply convinced of his or her own need of it. And so he ends, if you look into the mirror of God's word and see someone in need of grace, why would we be impatient with others who share that need? The contrast, if you know how much you've been loved, it will necessarily affect how you live. If God is your God, everything is different. The letter of Ephesians. And that's why I was reading one commentator who just lays out these stats. Paul uses the word riches five times. He uses the word grace 12 times. He uses the word glory eight times. And he uses the words fullness or filled up or fills six times. And then he uses the phrase in Christ or in him 15 times. Why does he do this? Because he wants you to know the riches of the glory of God's grace and greatness. And he wants you to want to be near him and to be filled with him. And that's called by faith alone being in Christ. He knows if you are connected to Jesus by faith, you will experience the richness of his blessings. You will live in his glorious grace and you will shout from the rooftops the glories of our God. Paul has structured this letter so that God would be our God, so that we would look at it and leave with a sense of encouragement rather than condemnation that that God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? Well, 
Paul wanted this letter not only shared with the Ephesian church, but it was actually known as a circular letter, which means it was taken by a man, we find this out in the book of Colossians, by a man named Tychicus, and he took the Ephesian letter and the, Colossian, the letter to the Colossians, and he took them around to different churches. That's why those two letters are so similar as you read them. But what we also find out is that Paul was released from prison at some point after writing the, the letter to the Ephesians, and he went on to probably Spain, as some of the early church writings tell us. He went on to Spain to proclaim Jesus, but then, sometimes during that time, he also wrote a letter to Timothy. Do you know who Timothy was? Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And so, when you're looking at First and Second Timothy, it's Paul encouraging the church of Ephesus. Because now false teaching is starting to come in. And he's telling Timothy how to order the church, how to structure the church, and how to care for the church so the false teachers don't come in. But here's what happened. Paul got arrested again. Went back to Rome, and this time it was the last time. While he was in prison, he wrote 2 Timothy. And then later he was martyred, executed for his faith. All the way until his last breath. Paul wanted the people of God to be able to answer that question. Who is your God? Who do you love? Who do you trust? Who are you going to go after? What if God was our God? Now, over Christmas break, I actually read um, the book of Job. I know a little light reading over Christmas break. And so, as I was reading the book of Job, there was something that just really, a lot of things, but something that really stuck out to me as I was reading. Job, if you know the story, many of you might not, Job lost everything. And it was at that time, having lost everything, he had three friends. Three friends who sat with him and wept with him for seven days. But those three friends began to accuse him wrongly. Not once, not twice, but three times they accused him wrongly. Getting more and more angry every single time. By the time 20 plus chapters of false accusations are preserved in Holy Scripture. And by the time you get to the end of it, you begin to smell that these accusations are wrong. When you get to chapter 42, he tells us those three people convinced they were right were in sin and they were wrong. However, this is what stood out to me. Before God spoke to those three accusers and told them they were wrong, he first spoke to Job. Job, who it was said at the end, was without sin, it says also in Job that God rebukes him. Work through that in your brain. It says in Job that the Lord came to him. Uses the covenant name for God, Yahweh, a sense of nearness. And God gets really near to Job because he wants Job to remember something in the midst of his suffering. And here's the punchline. God is Always, always, always at work, even when you can't see it. 
And so what does God do? God tells Job, it's time for you to think on me for a second. And I just want you to hear some of the things that God says to Job. Job chapter 38. Here's what he says. (laughs) He doesn't start out soft. First words, dress for action like a man. (laughs) Take it, boy. Okay. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, tell me. Don't just put Job's name there. Put your name there. I put my name there. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you've got understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and sea bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Where were you when I did that? God says waters go this far and no further. God says coastline is here and not here. He says, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know this. You don't know it. He doesn't let it go. God keeps talking. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Track that. Lightnings, talk to God and ask for permission where to go. God says here and not here. They are at his beck and call. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food? Do you take care of them or do I? God says, it's me. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious. For if I feed the birds, how much more will I take care of you? He's pressing in on Job. To remind him that he doesn't know what all is going on. Do you get it? He's saying over here around the corner where your eyes can't see, I'm feeding a bird. I'm doing that. And if I'm doing that around the corner and if I'm doing that over here, don't you think I'm still at work right here in the midst of your suffering and pain? And Job gets it. And Job says, the only thing you can say, Behold, I'm small. Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you, O God? I lay my hand on my mouth. Paul writes this letter so that he could take us as close as human words could take us to the edge of the glory of God. And that we might shout with all our breath that he is glorious and we are small. 
What if that God, the God of Job, was your God? I want to tell you this couple weeks ago, I was personally rebuked by the Bible. And as I was reading, just reading through, I've been battling with fear at times. I don't know if you've been there. Fear of people or fear of circumstances. That can happen. And here's what I read. I read about a boat that was on some choppy waters. Now, you need to understand this. I get a little motion sick when I'm on merry-go-rounds, okay? Not very proud of it, but something's happened as I've gotten older that my equilibrium gets a little wonky, okay? So when I see that they're on boats and that water is doing like this, I'm thinking I'm yakking over the side like this is not going well. Jesus, he's sleeping, okay? Just, you know, I already knew he was completely different than me, but (laughs) just one more evidence. He's laying there sleeping. And what happens is, the people in the boat get afraid. And they say, don't you care? Don't you care that we're about to die? Jesus wakes up. He just says, peace, be still. And the waters stop. And then he says, why are you afraid? Don't you trust me? Why are you afraid? Where's your faith? Don't you trust me? And the Lord just used that to hit my heart like, I do. I do trust you. Father, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? I'm weak, but you're trustworthy. And so it makes complete sense that Paul wants a fearful, weak people be brought to the precipice of glory to say what if our God was the God of the Bible and so he ends I end with what I think he would want our final words to be today and that is this Ephesians 3 now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need a glimpse of You. We are too easily swayed by the opinions of people and by the words of individuals. Father, give us you. Give us you in great measure. Pour yourself out upon us. And sometimes there are times when application needs to be limited and you just need to be front and center about how great and supreme you are. And so do it, Father. I pray that we all get a greater sense of you today. Father, please stir up excitement in our hearts 
that that God, the God who is in control of lightning and ice storms and snow and waters and seas and the beginning of time and the end of time, that you, that God, is the God who is actively working right now in our lives. Convince us of it, Father, I pray. And rip away fear. Rip away fear, I pray. And give us confidence in you. Would you please, oh God, strengthen our spines and put a sparkle in our eye and remove the fear of the future. Because you are on your throne and you are glorious. And if you gave your only son for us, how much more will you also graciously give us all things in Christ? Father, help us. Help us to answer in our weakness when you say, don't be afraid, do you trust me? Help us to say, yeah, I trust you. It doesn't mean that we understand. Most of the time it means we don't understand. God, please be near to us. Help us to rest in you. Paint your life over every corner of the canvas of our existence. May nothing be off limits to you. And in a spirit of prayer, reflection upon our great God, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. When you are ready, you can get up from your seat and go to one of the two tables in the front or one in the back and get the bread and the cup and go back to your seat or go anywhere in the room, spend time praying, whatever you need to do. But this is a time, a time where we confess the greatness of our God and our need for Him. It's a time to confess our sin and a time to confess His goodness. It's a time to say what we said at our baptism, that we have died to sin and we're alive, we're new in Christ, and He is our everything. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. And so, when you're ready, you can go and take the Lord's Supper if you are a follower of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus today, I pray that you would not take of this meal. There are actually warnings in the Bible about doing that. But that you in this time would call out to God and you would say, God, I'm a sinner and I can't fix my problem. I can't fix my own heart. I need you to save me and rescue me. I pray that you would call out to him You don't have to know everything. You just have to be humble and say, I need forgiveness of my sins and I need you to come and live in my heart and to change me and make me new. I want to know you, God. You can pray that today. In your own words, in your own way, you can just talk to God. But wherever you find yourself, let's fight today to make the God of the Bible our God and to enjoy the riches of his love. Let's take the supper together.